This is a God Be the Glory is a great, a great hymn of celebration uh, written by Fanny Crosby. It's uh, one that you've probably sung before. Uh, and I, I just kind of want to go back. I mean, just, this, this is one of those songs that just kind of explodes with, with joy off the page. You know, I mean, she, she comes in, she starts writing, she says, To God be the glory. Somebody needs to say glory. glory. Oh, now you've got to say it like you mean it. To God be the glory. Great things he has done. To God be the glory. glory. So loved the world he gave us his son. To God be the glory. glory. He yielded his life and atonement to sin. To God be the glory. glory. And open the life gate that all may go in. To God be the glory. glory. Let's pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks for the gift of life and redemption and hope. Uh, we ask you to come and just pour that hope into us as we gather and worship this morning. May the words of my mouth, may the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, because you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So Fanny wrote this song in 1875 and, uh, and published it here in the United States, and it was received with a resounding thud. Nobody liked it, nobody sang it, nobody did much with it, except for... One guy, a great evangelist by the name of Dwight L. Moody, and, uh, and Dwight Moody uh, began using this in some of his campaigns, and he would sing it, but it just didn't really take off here in the States. And, and then he went over to England, and he used it in some of his evangelistic crusades in England, and the people in England ate it up. They loved it. They sang it all over the place. And, and if you didn't notice, uh, it's a three-quarter time. Uh, William Doan's tune for this is a three-quarter time, which is a waltz kind of thing, and which is why you see people, if you start swaying to it and all, I mean, you can't hardly hold still uh, it just kind of picks up the joy of the hymn and carries it and I'm sure that's why it was so loved I mean it just oozes out joy uh, as you sing this hymn and, and it took off in England became wildly popular in 1954 Billy Graham did a crusade in England and when he went to England the evangelistic folks in England uh, came to him and said oh we really want to sing this hymn we really like this and so they sang it at several of his events the crusades and uh, he fell in love with it and he brought it back to America where it took off and then became popular some 80 years after it was first published which goes to prove you there is such a thing as redemption and resurrection. <laughs> So it's a great hymn. Uh, comes, it just explodes with joy off the page, this, this piece of music that's written by Fanny Crosby. And, uh, and she herself is a, uh, really a remarkable person. Uh, if you look up there, you'll see her date. So she was born in 1820 in Brewster, New York, and died in 1915 in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Uh, so she was 95, which you know, for somebody born in the early 1800s is really remarkable uh, lifespan. Uh, but she lived 95 years. And, and during that time, she was known as the Queen of American hymn writers. Uh, she wrote something like 9,000 hymns in her lifetime, uh, which means she wrote more than Charles Wesley did, and, and I, I think she may have written more than anybody. I mean, she wrote this tremendous number of hymns. She also published poems on top of that. She wrote cantatas on top of that. Uh, in addition to uh, singing at different kinds of events and doing music for different kinds of events, uh, she also provided music for, you know, like public events and, and uh, government kind of celebrations and so forth. So uh, just as very prolific writer. Matter of fact, at one point in time, she had a contract with a publisher to write three hymns a week. Now, you know, I'd be lucky to do one in three years, and she's cranking out three hymns a week. In fact, she wrote so many hymns um, in this period of time in the eight, late 1800s, 
the hymn publishers kind of had an agreement with the different writers that they wouldn't use more than a certain number of hymns from any one writer so that you know, everybody could kind of get their chance. And, and she wrote so many different hymns, she couldn't get them all published, so she started publishing them under pseudonyms and at one point had something like 200 different pseudonyms that she was publishing hymns under so she could get them all out. And one collection of her hymns, which was published in 1864, uh, under about 35 different pseudonyms, uh, uh, that collection of hymns sold 3 million copies in 1864, which is an outrageous number. Uh, so she was wildly, uh, you know, her music is wildly popular uh, and sung all over the place, although not always, you know, behind her name. Uh, she's born Frances Crosby, uh, and so uh, that became uh, the nickname of Fanny was applied to her early on. Uh, she's born, uh, we think she was born uh, blind, uh, she would write that when she was about six days old, she got some kind of a virus that they treated with uh, mustard poultices, which is something they used way back then. And uh, <clears throat> she always kind of attributed her blindness to those poultices. Uh, most doctors now say, no, actually, that wouldn't have done that. They think that she was born blind and so uh, lived all of her life without sight. Uh, and then when she was about uh, uh, six months old, her father passed away. And so she and her mother moved in with her grandmother, and she was raised in that household. Uh, it was a very uh, devout household. Uh, she's a descendant of the Puritans that landed on Plymouth Rock. Uh, she's a daughter of the American Revolution, so a, a deep connection not only with the country's history, but also with the religious history of the country. And she was raised in this really devout household. Uh, she went to the New York Institution of the, for the Blind, which is where she was educated. And then once she graduated from there, she began to teach uh, there as well. And she had a student by the name of uh, Alexander Van Alstyne who uh, then graduated and he began to teach. And then they began to see each other and they got married, uh, which meant that she had to resign because the school would only allow one or the other of them to be there once they got married. So she resigned and devoted herself at that point full-time to, to writing hymns and doing music and so forth. Um, they would have one child between them who would die at about six weeks of age, uh, and they would never have another child, and they really would never talk much about that uh, throughout all of her life. So um, they would go on then, and she would write all these hymns. And in uh, 1849, uh, there in New York, there was a cholera epidemic that swept through the city, and people were you know, sick and dying, and, and most people who were healthy fled to get away from it, and, uh, and Fanny refused to leave. And so she stayed in New York for uh, that year uh, and worked uh, taking care of people and uh, holding people's hands when they were ill, uh, uh, holding hands with them while they passed away, uh, attending to their funerals. Um, and at the end of that year of, of selfless kind of giving to the community, uh, she found herself spiritually depleted, as is understandable. And so she decided she needed to uh, think a little bit more and, and spend a little more time working on her own spiritual uh, formation. Uh, she had been a member of Sixth uh, Avenue Baptist Church there in New York at that time. And so she started looking some, around some different places uh, and trying different things. Uh, she went to a Presbyterian church. She went to Plymouth Church, which was a famous church in New York. Uh, she went to some Dutch Reformed churches. Uh, she went to several Methodist Episcopal churches before she finally settled on one of them. And the reason she settled was she became friends with a woman by the name of Phoebe Palmer. And those of you that know your history know Phoebe Palmer is the mother of the holiness movement uh, in the United States. And uh, she and Fanny became good friends with each other and stayed in touch with each other 
uh, across the rest of their lives together. Uh, we don't know that Fanny actually became part of the holiness movement, but she was certainly connected with it and understood it and, and the Wesleyan roots behind it. And in fact, if you listen to the first hymn, The Blessed Assurance, uh, you, you hear her very clearly articulating uh, Wesley's talk, uh, concept that you know you can know, you can actually know that you have received salvation. You can be assured of that and live from that place. And so you hear a lot of these concepts reflected in her hymns uh, that come out of Wesleyan theology uh, through that time. I mean, she lived this uh, long uh, life, and, and, and toward the end of her life, I mean, when she was kind of winding down the, the hymn writing, uh, she continued to be involved in a lot of things, even after she wasn't doing that. Uh, following the cholera epidemic, she became involved with several rescue missions in New York, uh, the Bowery Street Mission, uh, Hell's Kitchen Mission, the Manhattan Mission, uh, and she was involved with them the rest of her life. She was a big financial supporter of those as well as the New York Institution for the Blind. Uh, she would write at one point in her uh, diary, she said she had a horror of wealth, if you can imagine that. She had a horror of wealth. So, you know, like somebody comes up to you with a big stack of money and you're going, ah, get that away from me. Uh, she was afraid it would spiritually damage her. Uh, and so she, uh, she gave away most of the money uh, that she received. Uh, she lived very modestly all of her life and was a huge benefactor for the New York Institution for the Blind and the different rescue missions in the city up to the day she died. Uh, she blessed those things very richly and very powerfully. Now, she wrote all those, those music pieces over the years. Uh, there's seven of her hymns in our hymnal. All three of the hymns we're using this morning are Fanny Crosby hymns. Uh, and I, I talked with the worship team when we were planning this. I said, yeah, we could advertise it as all Fanny all weekend. And they went, no. <laughs> no, we can't do that. Uh, but, you know, she, this, is, this is an amazing woman. You know, when I begin to kind of dig into her history and read about her, and, and uh, you know, she, she really, kind of, it was kind of like she faced headwinds all her life. Uh, you know, she's, she's born and she's blind and then her dad dies and, and, and you know, she, she goes and, and studies and works hard through school and gets married and then their child dies and she survives this cholera epidemic that is just devastating to New York. I mean, she just, she's constantly kind of facing these headwinds and yet she writes this hymn that just, you know, kind of exudes joy. I mean, it just kind of jumps off the page with, with this joy and, and, and celebration of life. Uh, at one point, she would write uh, these words. She would say, It seemed intended by the blessed providence of God that I should be blind all my life, and I thank Him for the dispensation. If perfect earthly sight were offered me tomorrow, I would not accept it. I might not have sung hymns to the praise of God if I had been distracted by the beautiful and interesting things about me. Yeah, that's an amazing statement, you know. I've been born blind, and I, and I give thanks to God for that. And if, if God were to offer me sight tomorrow, I would turn it down because it might distract me from singing hymns to the praise of God. I mean, that's, a, that's an amazing statement of tremendous spiritual depth. And she just exuded that uh, through, through all of her lifelong work, everything that she did. You just see this tremendous uh, strength of spirit and strength of trust in God coming out over and over. And, and as I'm reading about her, it kind of reminded me of, a, of another woman I've met. Uh, she is the name of Jean Watson. She's a, a professional violinist with the symphony in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Uh, but she uh, kind of had a rough start to her life at a certain point and 
and came back around out of that and had a reuniting with Christ in her life, uh, which reoriented her. So she's still a professional musician with the, with the symphony, um, but she began then to move into other areas of Christian music and began to uh, sing and began to go in different places and speak uh, around the world. And uh, she does a lot of music in what's kind of an, an Irish uh, folk kind of gospel kind of, of strain, if you will. And uh, she has a radio show, uh, an hour-long radio show uh, every week in Ireland that's broadcast in Ireland. You can go online and find her blogs and things. Uh, but she came to New Room Conference, I think, two years ago, and, uh, and I had a chance to meet her. And, and aside from being a, a very um, extremely talented musician, um, you, you just immediately notice something about her. Uh, you just immediately notice a sense of, of, of joy about who she is and, and what kind of exudes from her. She's recently published a book. It's called Everything Can Change in 40 Days. And I want to read you the, the, the kind of out of the preface of this book as she sets it up. Um, she talks in here about traveling to different places in the world where she's spoke or done music and, and you know, done baptisms and people have converted and uh, had these powerful experiences of God's presence. And then she goes back three years later and finds that, well, you know, they've all kind of gone back to the way they used to be. And, and she's, she's kind of started asking questions about why, why is this transformation not sticking? Why isn't it taking hold? And then she says, uh, I was also puzzled by the lack of transformation in my own life. God was using me to sing and speak of his love to many people. And I saw his power at work. He was restoring my family, and there was peace in my home. Still, I wasn't experiencing peace and joy on a regular basis. Once my daughter Catherine even joked that the words, what and oh no, should be emblazoned on my tombstone were I to die. Funny as her words were at the time, they cut me to the core. This was not the testimony I wanted to leave my children. This was not the abundant life I read about in the Gospels. What was I missing? I fully believe that through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, I should have access to the riches of heaven here on earth. I preached thy kingdom come, but hadn't fully experienced God's kingdom for myself. I studied the gospels and saw Jesus spreading joy, peace, healing, and freedom everywhere he went. In the book of Acts, I read about the apostles continuing to spread the gospel message in word and in power. They saw heaven coming through their hands and knew it was Christ in them doing the work. As Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. I decided to try an experiment. What would happen if I lived like I really believed that the God who raised Jesus from the dead was dwelling inside my body? If the Spirit of the Lord was living in me all the time, my natural response would be to worship Him all the time. What would happen if I stopped trying to continually fix myself and simply lived a lifestyle of worship? I can't remember the exact date things started changing, but things started changing. As I began to focus on God rather than myself, the Lord began to transform my heart and my life. He taught me to see myself as He sees me and to catch His vision for my future. 
He set me free from the limitations of my mind that were holding me back. He gave me the courage to look at patterns of sin in my life. He taught me to pray and not give up. Most important, he taught me that the only thing that really matters every day is to love him and love the one in front of me. As I stopped trying to do this faith thing on my own and let him be God in me, my ministry grew in effectiveness. It wasn't me who spoke, sang, or played music anymore, but it was him, and I knew it. The Holy Spirit began showing up in meetings and moving hearts without me saying a word. I continued to pray for people, but I also began teaching them what I was learning about becoming the vessel that can receive God's life-transforming power. Transformation is not a magic pill we can take. It's a process of surrendering ourselves to God. Our job is simply to worship the Lord and let Him change us into the image of His Son so He can change the world through us. If you ever have a chance to meet her or hear her, you'll recognize the truth of that and who she is. But as I read through that and, I, and, and, and was thinking about Fanny, I thought, you know, that, that sounds to me a lot like the way Fanny Crosby must have lived also. Uh, th this person who just offered her whole life up to worship. How else can you explain such, such joy uh, being expressed with, just explosively almost uh, out of such a difficult kind of life? And she writes through this hymn, and in the, in the, in the first verse, you know, she's giving thanks to God for the gift of salvation. For God so loved the world, He gave His only Son, so that everyone who believes in Him may not perish, but may have eternal life. And He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and bandits. But the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters by me will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And you just hear this, this, this affirmation of her, this joy in, in the gift of salvation and the gift of life that God's given her. And, and it just overwhelms everything else that she faces in life. And so she lifts up her voice and she sings about that. And then she comes to the, the last verse of this. And, and again, she begins to sing praise to God. You know, great things he has taught us, great things he has done, and great our rejoicing through Jesus the Son. Sounds a lot like the psalm, when, psalmist when he writes, our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we rejoiced. She's able to lift that up and celebrate it in spite of the, the things that she's faced in life that are difficult. And then she goes on looking forward uh, to the end of time, but purer and higher and greater will be our wonder, our transport when Jesus we see. And you echo into revelation when the saints gather around the throne with the four living creatures and they all fall on their faces before the throne and worship god singing amen blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our god forever and ever amen and i don't know if you caught it did you catch the last line great will be our, our joy our wonder our transport when jesus we see now you remember she's blind right 
Remember that she's lying. And so she looks forward to that moment when, when she'll actually get to see Jesus' face. When I get to heaven, the first face that shall ever gladden my sight will be that of my Savior. I mean, she lives in this, this constant hope of, 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 of confidence of the salvation given to her and the hope of the life to come, not, not in a morbid sense, but, but with joy and anticipation. And it just jumps out through the words that she pins, this power of her life. And, and I just wonder, you know, as I, as I think about, you know, Fanny and I think about what I've seen in Gene Watson, and I wonder, you know, how many of us live with that kind of joy in our faith? How many of us have that kind of joy? Or are we still stuck trying to do this faith thing on our own? Now, it seems to me too often that we get stuck that way and, we're, and, and we begin, instead of surrendering to God, we begin to try to, you know, utilize or use God, you know, to fix the things that are wrong in us or to fix our husband or our wife or to fix our kids or our parents or the people we work with or the people that live next door to us or the people over the back fence or to fix our local politicians or our state politicians or our national politicians. And we fail miserably. And it becomes just one series of disappointments after another. I mean, what would it be like to, to actually, instead of doing that, to, to kind of reset, you know, to, to live from a place of worship in our life? Instead of doing this faith thing on our own, to, to actually surrender ourselves. You know, in, in Deuteronomy, uh, you had the Shema in the sixth chapter where, where God gives his word to his people and reminds them, you know, that I'm, I'm, I'm the God, you know, this is it, the only God, I'm your God. And, and he instructs them, he says, listen, you're going to remember, you're going to remember this and you're going to. You're going to write these words and you're going to put them on the back of your hand so that when you're doing things, you'll remember that I am your God. And you're going to put it on your forehead so when you think about things, you're going to remember I am your God. And you're going to put them on the doorpost so when you go in and out of your house, you're going to remember that I'm God. And you're going, to, you're going to think about these things when you get up in the morning and when you go to bed at night. And you're going to teach them to your kids and the people around you. Well, what would happen if we got serious about that? I mean, it seems to me that you know, people like Fanny and, and people like Jean, they've discovered the power of that. I mean, what would that be like if, if we got up in the morning, the first thing you did, would you, you, you did, you remember the words, to God be the glory. Somebody say glory. glory. Oh, no. To God be the glory. glory. And what would happen if in the evening you came home and you lay down, the last thought on your mind was to God be the glory. glory. What would happen if when you walked out the door, you remembered to God be the glory. glory. Or when you walked back in in the evening, you remembered to God be the glory. What would happen if everything you put your hand to to do, you remember to God be the glory. glory. And, and every thought in your mind was to God be the glory. glory. What would happen if we taught our children that this is what it means to live, to constantly be worshiping and saying to God be the glory. glory. And if we shared that with our parents, to God be the glory. glory. And we shared that with the people around us, to God be the glory. What would happen if every act of our life was an act of worship that constantly proclaimed, to God be the glory? glory? Instead of frustration, maybe God would begin to do a great work within us and the peace and the joy that we long for would become real. So I want to encourage you to consider the possibility that maybe what Fanny Crosby did in her life, 
Maybe what Jean Watson is still working on her life. Maybe that can be what you do with your life. And then in all times and in all places, you can offer yourself up as an act of worship and let God have his way with you. Let's pray. Mm, Father, we confess to you that we come and we, we sing and we celebrate and, and then we go out and, and we say, thank you for the gift of salvation and now we got this. And so we, we try to pull it back in and we try to fix the things in ourselves that aren't right and fix the things in the people we love and the people we work with and the world around us. And we, we constantly find ourselves failing in the midst of that. Because we've never been transformed. So, Father, we, we ask you to, to come and just uh, open our ears and our hearts and our minds to hear these words from our sisters. Let them speak into us. And let us remember you at every, every moment of our life and offer every moment of our life up to you as an act of worship. From when we get up in the morning to when we go to bed at night, when we go out of the house, when we come in the house, when we're speaking with our children and our parents and the people we work with and everything that we do and everything that we think and in everything that comes into our hearts, we might lift up and glorify you so that you, you might be at work in us. So, Father, we come and we offer ourselves to you in the name of Jesus. Amen.